Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the eternally young, wickedly hip, and always lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Good afternoon, Ashley. Olga. Hello. <laughs> good afternoon, Zach. It's good to be with you. <laughs> How are we doing, guys? Oh, so good, but yeah. so tired. Yeah, so tired. very, very tired. Yeah, so we're tired because we went to Theology on Tap in Washington, D.C., Archdiocese of D.C. invited us. We had a super fun time with their young adults, yep. and we had some drinks with them, but we're super tired, so yes. we're having coffee today. Yes. Uh, sweet, so sweet cheers, cheers to <laughs> cheers. Uh, Blue Bottle Coffee. Yeah. And who are we talking to this week, Olga? This week, we're excited to share a conversation we had a few weeks back with Brother Guy Consulmano, who is an astronomer and director of the Vatican Observatory. Yeah, he's also a Jesuit. I mean, Mm -hmm. Jesuits are doing cool things in all parts of the world. Um, And I think a lot of people are, one, surprised to find that the Vatican has an observatory at Mm -hmm. all. Um, But they're actually like serious leaders in uh, astrophysicism, astrophysics, (laughs) physics. Um, Yes, I didn't take science classes, Um, but he's a Jesuit. And so it's a really cool conversation. He convinces me why I shouldn't be afraid of space. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Uh, First, a really tragic story. Um, As I'm sure you've heard, uh, the Syrian government on April 7th uh, reportedly carried out a chemical weapons attack that left 42 people dead, including women and children, innocent civilians. Um, So Pope Francis on Sunday uh, condemned this attack and said, quote, there is no good and bad war and nothing, nothing can justify the use of such instruments of extermination against defenseless peoples and populations. So things have gotten even worse. (laughs) Yes, uh, because the response from the international community has been, well, what's next? Uh, What's going to deter Assad from using chemical weapons on his own people again? Like Mm -hmm. they have to show that there should be consequences for that. Um, And one approach the United States is weighing on the table right now is uh, airstrikes and bombs um, on Syrian airfields. And so the question is, we're teetering towards the edge of some serious conflicts. Yeah. And I don't know, I think for me, one thing to say is I I am pers- personally against, you know, getting more involved militarily in Syria. But I think even as we have these debates, it's important to say that, like, neither option is great. So, like, I, I can understand why people just want us to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it just feels awful to see these horrible images of children being gassed um and to you know there is just like this instinct like we've we've got to protect them and mm-hmm. that you know that's a good instinct to you know want to want to protect innocent people um but like you said zach i mean <laughs> there are consequences and one of them is you know a world war and it's what and you have to go what francis said in responses there's no yeah. such thing as good war and bad war right mm. uh He said over and over again, violence begets more violence. War begets more war. It's a tough situation. Olga, what do you think? I get the point that Ashley's making. It it, it is very hard to see all of these images and to not want something to happen. Um, But I think what a lot of people are forgetting right now is that you can get involved. Like We can encourage more nations like the United States to send more humanitarian aid 
Um, and Britain recently just announced that they were actually going to increase their, the humanitarian aid that they have sent to this part of the world. They've already sent over $3 billion. And I think this is a really great step that while all of these, while different countries are trying to decide whether or not to get involved, I think this is something that we can all kind of agree on. Yeah. And then another obvious next step is letting Syrian refugees into the United mm-hmm. States, which the Trump administration has halted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. So I think... We're no to war and bombs on mm-hmm. Team Jesuitical. Yeah. yeah, agreed. And speaking of, you know, welcoming refugees and people who are seeking asylum, there's news on the United States' southern border on this issue. Correct. Um, so there is a caravan of migrants from Central America making their way through Mexico, um, seeking asylum in either Mexico or in the U- United States. Um, and in response to this, President Trump has said he's going to deploy the National Guard to further strengthen security at the border. Um, so this caravan, its they are not breaking any laws by doing this. They have a right, because they are fleeing violence, to seek asylum. We don't have to let them in, but they do have the right to, to make their case. Um, and bishops on both sides of the border have condemned President Trump's uh, move. Uh, San Antonio Archbishop Gustavo Garcia Siller uh, said that this decision demonstrated repression, fear, a perception that everybody is an enemy, and a very clear message. We don't care about anybody else, and this is not the American spirit. So yeah, so related to Syria, these these are people that <laughs> deserve our compassion mm-hmm. and welcome. Right. Um, and, and instead, in both instances, the only response that we can think of is responding with our military. And it's frustrating because it happens over and over again mm-hmm. throughout history that we just meet suffering with force. Uh, there's got to be a better way. Yeah. What's next, Olga? So this past Monday, April 9th, Pope Francis released a 20,000 word exhortation on the call to holiness in the contemporary world. And the Latin title is, I'm totally going to butcher this, uh, but the title is Gaudati Ec et exultate how, how is that gaudate et exultate pushes up my glasses <laughs> into my nose uh gaudete ex exultate okay uh, i i feel like ashley's version was right uh it's, i mean it's, it's not ex exultate it's et yeah it is et et exultate yeah. what did i say et ex but anyways, <laughs> to our listeners means... who do not want to struggle with this Latin, um, it means rejoice and be glad. And it's actually taken from the Gospel of Matthew. And also rejoice <laughs> oh, and Lord. be glad. <laughs> That's been stuck in Gaudete my head. Through... et exultate. Oh, God. Anyways, um, so Pope Francis reminds us that um, some of the things he said in the exhortation, the Lord asks everything of us and he wants us to be saints and not settle for a bland and mediocre experience. He hopes that he can help us achieve more holiness in a contemporary world and in our daily lives. And thankfully, he's given us some pretty practical ways to go about that. That's sort of my favorite thing about this encyclical is that sometimes like phrases like be more holy or be a saint can Mm -hmm. get really weighed down in expectations um, that are super lofty or pious or don't sound achievable. And Francis sort of breaks it down and says, we have all these great examples of the saints, but we also have the saints next door Mm -hmm. and the, you know, the people who do all sorts of things that go unnoticed every day. Uh, There's this one paragraph in particular where he just sort of goes through uh, this woman's day where uh, he, he says uh, she goes to a grocery store and meets a friend and they start talking and she starts to gossip. But 
the woman stops herself and says, no, I don't want to do that. And that's a step towards holiness. Right. And, right. Then, and then she goes home and her kid comes home from school and wants help with homework. Even though she's tired, she makes a sacrifice and listens to it. And that's a step towards holiness. And mm-hmm. all these little things that like we do that we don't think of as, you know, building our saint profile. But Francis <laughs> is like, no, they are. Yeah. So what jumped out the most to me, I think, it's similar. It's expanding the realm of what is holy. And he does this by kind of taking a both and approach to what we do in our lives. So like, yes, prayer and quiet time with God is very important on this path towards holiness. But so is active service and going out and interacting with others. Um, and he applies that too to like uh, political issues. So like he says, it's very important that we defend uh, the un- unborn life, um, but equally sacred are the lives of the poor and those already born, the destitute and the abandoned. So this idea that you don't you don't have to choose between <laughs> these um, and that, you know, holiness has room for for people who care about social justice and people who care about defending uh, the lives of the unborn. And in fact, you, you kind of need to do both. <laughs> right, yeah, right. definitely. It's a really good document. Mm-hmm. You should definitely read it. it. It's so easy to read, too. That was yeah. a nice thing I appreciate yeah. about it. What's next, Olga? So coming out of Sweden, for the first time in 500 years, Lutherans are welcoming Catholics to celebrate masses in Lund Cathedral. Now, this cathedral is pretty historic because it's been the site of feuding. Um, However, it's since Pope Francis held a service there in 2016, it's become a really great symbol of interfaith dialogue. Um, So this is really, really encouraging. And Catholic services are going to start there in October. And the thing I love about this is it's dialogue is often just like a lot of talking back and forth. And this is like some action that's happening yeah and that's something that pope francis has been very strong on not just like yeah like high level dialogue uh but promoting ecumenism um of action and prayer and that like that is a much more um fruitful starting point than like you know seeing like okay where do we disagree and let's talk it out but like actually praying together Mm -hmm. amen what's next zach okay in a story that seems tailor-made for jesuitical (laughs) i was very excited to find this uh this comes from brazil where saint gerald church in sorocaba decided to spice up their liturgy with some new technology uh they brought in a drone and the headline was just like uses a drone to carry the eucharist Mm -hmm. uh which seems odd and i thought maybe they were taking the drone and sending it up to the choir loft or something to distribute communion (laughs) or like putting it in people's actual yeah i I wasn't sure what was going on it turns out that they've attached some type of monstrance to the drone and yeah it's just it looks ridiculous it's so it's (laughs) like the drone is processing down the aisle with this it's a very large monstrance um and the drone can't really (laughs) handle it it keeps like dipping down and like almost hitting the ground and this woman has to come behind and kind of like lift it back up (laughs) um and it just looks ridiculous um and it's not like needless to say if you're not catholic the eucharist is very important for us (laughs) so to like put it in a situation where it might be crashing and falling all over the place not good and so they got a lot of pushback online that some of some of it went way too far yeah People were like, oh, you disrespected the Eucharist. I hope the whole church burns down. Oh, Lord. And it's yeah. like, I think that might also disrespect the Eucharist in the church. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I I mean, I mean, did not think this was uh, the best use of technology in the liturgy. Um, 
But I don't think that's because necessarily using technology is wrong. I, if you were using a motorized scooter so someone could bring the or mm. bring the gifts up the aisle, like that would be a great use of technology. But where it goes kind of off the rails is where you're not you're not using technology to bring people closer to Christ or more into communion uh, with each other, but just as kind of like a gimmick. I, Look at our new toy. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, didn't, I wasn't a fan of this. Um, well, because I'm, I'm someone who the service I go to at up in East Harlem, they are very into using technology during service. And they have projectors and they have lyrics up on the screen. And for someone who didn't grow up with any of the songs that the worship leader always brings out every week, I'm like, it's super helpful to me to be able to read these lyrics and actually join in with everyone singing. And it does make me feel like I'm actually worshiping in community with people, you know? Mm -hmm. So in in that, for me, I I think technology in that sense can bring people closer. See, I don't like it when other people can see all the lyrics because if more people are singing, I can't hear myself as well. Uh, so of I'm course, anti, yeah. anti-lyrics uh-huh. on a projector. Uh, <laughs> listeners, what do you think? Have you seen good uses of technology in your liturgy? Let us know. Send us an email, jesuitical at americamedia.org. Today, via Skype, we're speaking with Brother Guy Consulmano, astronomer, Jesuit brother, and director of the Vatican Observatory. Welcome to Jesuitical, brother. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're very excited to be talking with you. So first question, what exactly is the Vatican Observatory? Well, um, the idea back 125 years ago was to have a little outfit of pure science that the Vatican would be supporting. And this would do two things. First, it would show the world that the church supports astronomy and supports science in general. And secondly, by being a national observatory, it would show the world that the Vatican was a nation independent of Italy. And Uh, that was really important before the Vatican had, you know, status and was mm -hmm. finally recognized by Italy. So it was it was a political move in in some way. It was political and it was PR. (laughs) And that's really all we have to do. And it means that, you know, we're not setting the date of Easter. We're not, you know, casting the Pope's horoscope, anything like that. We are, we're just free to do really good science, the best we can do, and participate as representatives of the Holy See with scientists from all over the world. Are people surprised to find out that there's not a lot of strings that are attached? Well, um, that lack of strings attached is really what surprises people. Because I was a, you know, I was a real astronomer, I should say, you know, supported <laughs> by NASA grants and the like. Before I was a Jesuit, and I only entered the Jesuits when I was in my late 30s, so I know what it's like to, to live off grants. Mm-hmm. The thing is, when you're a scientist, you generally have a three-year period to come up with results or else they don't renew the grant. Mm-hmm. But at the Vatican, we can do long-term projects. They don't tell us what to do. It's now you know the flavor of the month. Uh, suddenly, astrobiology is exciting. We all have to do astrobiology, and then you know a new administration comes in and says, no, no, no. We're going to be doing uh, flights to the moon. Mm-hmm. We don't have to worry about that. We do long-term projects that we find interesting. Great. So is, is everyone at the observatory a Jesuit, or do, does everyone have to be a priest? What's <clears throat> that like? Well, the community is a Jesuit community, and that means if we're all living there, then it's good to be living under one rule. And the observatory was given to the Jesuits to uh, staff, essentially, to find up with the, the, find the dozen people who work here. 
there are a couple of diocesan priests who are more or less full-time members. One guy is a full-time member of the observatory. Another fellow has a, a sort of adjunct status. In addition, we do have a group of about a dozen adjunct astronomers who, a few are Jesuits, others are not religious at all. We have you know, a number of women in the group, and they help extend our outreach to cover the parts of astronomy that we might not cover or to give them access to the things we've got, like our library or our plate vault, that they can use in their research. So what types of things are you covering there, then? What's your, like, bread and butter? We've got essentially a dozen people here doing a dozen different projects. The bread and butter really is using the telescope for survey work, or using the meteorite lab for survey work, or using our plate vault, again, for surveys. So it's the idea of simply filling in the census of what's in the universe and how it's put together and offering these data to the rest of the community. We're doing the kind of work that takes a long time. You can't get a three-year grant to do, but the community needs. What have been some of the most exciting discoveries out of the observatory and it's over 100 years of operating? There have been a few exciting things, but I should preface this by saying we're not out for exciting. <laughs> we let the other guys get the Nobel Prizes. We provide the raw data that they use. Gotcha. That said, we um, started a project in the 1930s of taking the spectra of every pure metal that you might find in a star. And the guys in those days started their own journal, Spectra Chimica Acta, which after World War II, when basically there was no place in Europe that could publish it, the Vatican published this journal, which today is, you know, it's a major journal now published by Elsevier, like everything else up in the Netherlands. But starting this journal was a pretty major accomplishment. Uh, one of the flashier things they did, and I say that pun intended, was to photograph <laughs> the green flash. Hey. Now, scientifically, it's the curiosity. But people had argued for a long time, if you see the sunset and it gets redder and redder and redder, and just at the moment of sunset, there's a flash of green sometimes. Well, was that an optical illusion because you were staring at the sun while it was setting, or is it really there? These guys in the 1950s photographed it and showed it was there. Hmm. Uh, stuff that I've been involved in that uh, you, you're going to get me started. I'm never going to stop. <laughs> uh, a couple things. With our telescope in Arizona which is a beautiful telescope, 25 years in operation now. So you have equipment then that's not just centrally located in the Vatican. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's no way you can use telescopes out of Rome anymore because of the light pollution. Don't uh, get me started on light pollution. I'll never stop. <laughs> Pope Benedict once had a, a, a homily where he compared how we've destroyed our ability to see the stars by our own human lights. And that's how in our lives we try to make so much noise we drown out God. Hmm. And I think it, it's, it's a marvelous analogy. Yeah. So anyway, we got these guys using a telescope here in Arizona. And again, because we had the telescope time and the ability to take a chance, they did a survey of uh, 10 or 20 of these objects out beyond Neptune and discovered, much to everybody's surprise, that their colors come in two distinct groups. And this has been confirmed now over the past 25 years. We've now got hundreds of these objects. But again, to put, it, uh, to put together an inventory, what's out there, what does it look like, what should we be looking for next? Hmm. So 
I think some people may think that there's a conflict between religion and science. Um, maybe all they've heard about what the church has to say about science is that they, you know, uh, persecuted Galileo. So what all is- the horrible <laughs> things we did to Galileo. Yes. <laughs> so do you want to bust some myths about religion and science? Sure. Yes. One of the reasons we exist is to trigger these questions about church and science that a lot of people have. And without going into the roots of it, which basically come from the 19th century, it's not from the time of Galileo. And again, it's pretty much politics. You know, a lot of people wanted to keep those immigrants out of America, people with vowels at the end of their name, like Consolmagno. <laughs> but the, uh, the hardest thing for me in the church science conflict is to figure out why people think there's a conflict. I mean, when I was in school, it was the nuns who taught me science, as well as teaching me religion. I never grew up thinking there was a conflict. It finally occurred to me that people have this idea that religion is a big book of facts and science is a different big book of facts. And what happened if the facts in one don't agree with the facts in the other? And of course, that's not what science is at all. That's not what religion is at all. But that's the way we teach it to kids. Because, mm-hmm. you know, what, what else can a 10-year-old or an 11-year-old handle And sadly, most people don't learn much science out of what they learn in junior high. Uh, But science is not a book of facts. If it were true, then why would science books keep going out of date? If anything, if it's a book at all, it's an open book. It's one where we continue to try to understand what's going on. And likewise, religion isn't a closed book. Um, I mean, even if you're Thomas Aquinas and you think you understand it all, well, I'm not Thomas Aquinas and I know I don't understand it all. I've always got more to learn about God and how God works and how God works in the universe. And I've always got more to learn about science and and how the universe works there. And it's not that what the nuns taught me in grade school was wrong. It's that what I was able to learn in grade school was mighty limited. And everything that I learned then turns out to be so much deeper and so much richer. And both science and religion let me look with, with two eyes. Or, or to use the phrase of uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, faith and reason are the two wings that allow you to fly closer to the truth. Right. Though I think someone flying closer to, to the truth, you could fly closer to the sun, too. Well, this <laughs> is also wings. true. Yes. And especially if you think. The worst is, you can't be a good scientist if you think you know the answer. And you can't be a good religious person if you think you know for sure mm. what God has been saying. Uh, that certainty kills you. But I'm, I'm reminded of a wonderful phrase that uh, Anne Lamott, the, the religious writer, used, but actually goes back to, uh, to theologians. Paul Tillich, I think, makes this point. That Anne Lamott's phrase is marvelous. The opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Mm-hmm. If you're a person, you always have to have doubts. If you didn't have doubt, you wouldn't need faith. And if you didn't have doubt, then you wouldn't know that there's more for you to learn. Do you think we're afraid to ha- have doubt in our scientific uh, knowledge more than ever? I uh, think? The sci- true scientists are never afraid to have doubt, but an awful lot of people who want to pretend they're scientists, uh, the sort of science groupies, sure. they're the <laughs> ones who want to speak with great certainty. And there are religion groupies, too. You've probably seen that bumper sticker that says, I love God, it's this fan club I can do without. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's also true of science. There are people who are you know, fans of science who think that it's going to be the, the source of all truth. It's not the source of truth. It's the source of questions. 
And that's why it's so much fun and why it never exhausts itself. Hmm. So, Brother Guy, you mentioned that you were an astronomer before you became a Jesuit. What what kind of made you decide to become a Jesuit and kind of continue the scientific work you were doing in that way? Well, I, it's a long story how I got there, but I'll, I'll end with the critical point. I was teaching at a wonderful little college in Pennsylvania called Lafayette College in a small liberal arts school. And after trying lots of different things, I had finally landed someplace where I said, this is it. I'm good at this. They're having fun in my class. I'm having fun in the class. But I want to do the same thing and yet stand for something bigger than just my own career. Uh, I'd been dating the woman up in Boston. We broke up and you know, both realized we weren't right for each other and we're both right to do that. But then I'm saying, okay, now what do I do? And it suddenly hit me, if I joined the Jesuits, I could keep on teaching and yet stand for something bigger than myself. Um, and there are a lot of other motives going on behind it, but the idea of being a Jesuit brother in particular, really, when the thought hit me, and the more I thought about it and, and spent time praying about it and spent time asking my friends about it, they all said, yeah, of course. The most embarrassing thing were most of my friends saying, yeah, we could have told you that back in high school. Why do you have to wait till you're 36? But so when I entered the Jesuits, it was really with the thought of teaching at a small college. You know, Lafayette College was wonderful. So what's the Jesuit equivalent? Maybe Loyola College in Baltimore. Unfortunately, you take these three vows and you become a brother, right? Poverty, well, I was used to that. I'd been a grad student. <laughs> and, and chastity, well, I was used to that. I'd been a grad student. <laughs> but, but obedience, oh, okay. I was not used to obedience. Mm-hmm. And rather than sending me to one of these small schools where I wanted to teach, instead, under obedience, I was ordered to join the Vatican Observatory, do full-time research, which I thought I didn't want to do. And, oh, yeah, you have to live in Italy and eat that terrible food and look at that oh, miserable boy, scenery. What a sacrifice. And, <laughs> but in fact, it wasn't what my original idea was. It turns out to have been a great thing. It was the, And not just for the food and not just for the scenery. Uh, it reinvigorated my scientific life in a way that I never expected, but it wasn't my idea. Mm-hmm. So, Brother Guy, you're, you're also known as the Pope's astronomer. So how often do you actually get to talk to Pope Francis about science? Not that often. I'll be, you know, be perfectly honest. We don't run into each other in the hallway. Uh, <laughs> see, that's how I envisioned your day-to-day to be like. No, no, it's uh, don't I wish. And people keep sending me things. Oh, hand this to the Pope the next time you see him. <laughs> And they don't realize it may be a year before I see him again. All right. Well, oh. in that case, just send my package back, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you have these two identities as, as a Jesuit and a scientist. Do you ever get suspicion from one side or the other? Um, maybe priests who are suspicious of your work as a scientist or scientists who, um, you know, look askance at you, at, at you as a priest? Well, I'm a brother, first of all, not oh, a priest. Yeah. <laughs> so Got to remember that. In fact, just the opposite tends to happen. Most astronomers are familiar with the Vatican Observatory. We've been around for a while. They probably know other Jesuit astronomers. And the Jesuits do have this reputation of being intellectuals. So we're very much accepted in the intellectual community. The weirdest thing happened to me, though, fairly early on at the observatory. A friend of mine teaches at College of Charleston, South Carolina. And they wanted me to show up because South Carolina was going to be passing some uh, 
regulations for what they're going to teach in the grade school and high school and, and the college been, been instrumental in putting this together. It was good science stuff. It was teaching evolution, teaching the Big Bang Theory, and they wanted to show that religious people were behind them. So I show up, and I'm warned, you know, the chair of the state board in South Carolina comes from the same town as Bob Jones University, and That's viciously Catholic. <laughs> well, well, I was you know full of all sorts of northern prejudices. <laughs> after the talk and after the presentation, this woman that everyone was afraid of came up to me and said, "It's so wonderful to have a scientist at the Vatican." Blew me away. I mean, just completely surprised me. Until I realized, most people, the only scientists they see are the pop scientists who are on TV. Yeah. And most of them try to sell themselves by waving the atheist flag. Look what a real scientist I am. Well, scientists aren't atheists, but that's the popular picture they're trying to give you. And, and these people aren't bad people. You know, Neil Tyson is a buddy, and he's not a bad guy. Um, I wish he knew more history of science, but that's a different issue. <laughs> but what people really want is science from a source that they can trust. Science not from somebody who's trying to undermine their faith. And the fact that we can do that at the Vatican Observatory is a source of delight. In the same way, even my non-believing friends want to have a spokesperson for science who can speak to the religious and let them know, no, we're not all evil people. Some of us, yeah, but not all of us. Not, you know. <laughs> so talking about like uh, science maybe undermining your faith, I, I have this tendency when I think about space for too long and all its vastness and all of the cool things that happen, I get overwhelmed. I, I, actually, I think fear is an emotion that rises up within me. Um, yep. Is that normal? Should I be afraid? Why shouldn't I? <laughs> you don't have to answer the normal question, I guess, but... It is normal, and not only that, you find it in the Psalms. Um, if I were a Protestant, I could quote the exact Psalm. I think it might be Psalm 8. That <laughs> uh, says something to the effect of, you know, Lord, you're so big, I'm so small. Who am I that you even pay attention to me? Mm. And yet, you've made us just a little bit less than, than yourself and more than the angels. That sense has been around since people have been able to look at the sky. And there's two ways to deal with it, each of them overwhelming and terrifying. <laughs> right. So the first one is to say, the universe is so big, I'm so small, forget it, there's no way God could even notice me. Hmm. The other way is to say, the universe is so big, and I'm so small, and yet God does notice me with all of the attention that I can stand and a little bit more. And that tells me just how incredibly big God actually is. So you you uh, are the author of a book called Would You Baptize an Extra Extraterrestrial, which is, you know, kind of like a funny question. But I think for a lot of people, it, like if there was a life on other planets, it would raise real questions about their faith. Um so what is your answer to that question, and why do you think it's worth asking? Well, well, the, the, the short answer is only if she asks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I talk about that short answer and what it all means in the book. The bigger answer is it should make you question your faith, because you should always be questioning your faith. But the questions should be specific. What does it mean to be baptized? Why do we have baptism? Why is it that we baptize people and not our dogs and our cats? 
I don't say that any of these things have simple answers. It makes you realize it's more complicated than you thought. But at the end of the day, if you have a person who is aware of themselves, aware of others, free to choose to love or not love others, that, that's intellect and free will. That's the, the sign of the soul. And if you're free to do good, you're also free to do evil. And if you do evil, you need to have something to make it right. So any entity, I don't care how many tentacles you've got, any <laughs> entity that, that's free to love or not love is going to be in need of some way of reconciling with God. Besides which, we know in our own tradition that we're not the only ones out there. Okay. You can find plenty of places you know, where the stars themselves are shouting to God with joy, or simply the idea of angels. If yeah. you know Whether you want to take angels as literally true or you know, beautiful pictures of something too uh, strange and marvelous for us to understand, the fact that they exist, the fact that they're part of our culture means that we know we are not the only creatures that God created. Yeah. I've never thought about it like that. Huh. So, but I am going to I'm going to pin you down and hold you this. So, are 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 they out there? <laughs> do, do you there, there's aliens? a wonderful uh, short story. There's a fellow who tweets short stories. He puts an entire story into one tweet. And uh the one that I love goes uh go guru says someone, are we alone? And he says, "Yes, we're alone." And then, oh, guru, does this mean there's no one else out there? And the guru says, yes, there are others out there. They're alone, too. Mm. Okay. <laughs> we'll ponder that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for this. Um, one final question for you. If you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be? Terrestrial or extraterrestrial? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my I've never been asked that one before, and I don't have, you know, a glib off the top of my head uh, answer. But uh, it would probably be, you know, some rock star who's changed people's lives. I'll I'll throw this out. You know, it, I hope he never hears this. Bob Dylan. Ah, okay. okay. <laughs> give us the give us the elevator pitch. Um, he's someone who, even as a young man, opened himself up to poetry and thoughts and urges that he knew was behind him, and he had the strength to know that it wasn't him. He had the strength to resist all of the blandishments of people trying to turn him into something he wasn't. So both being open to the spirit and recognizing it's the spirit and not you, that's pretty special. All right. That's great. Bob great. Dylan. <laughs> and what you mentioned uh, the Twitter handle. What's that Twitter handle, brother guy? My Twitter handle is speculations, as in specula, because I belong to the specula Vaticana. <laughs> so it's a misspelling of speculations. It's <laughs> speculations. But also uh, the Vatican Observatory itself has its own Twitter, which I think is you know, Vatican Observer, mm -hmm. something crazy like that. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, brother guy. And thanks for having me on this show. You guys do great stuff. Thank, great. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. So this week we went down to the 
Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., Ashley's homeland. Um, we were there for the Theology on Tap, uh, which is a monthly thing they do. It's a great ministry. They, I was so impressed. They have so many people coming yeah. out for Yeah, that. it was such a good event. We and met a lot. like of, us. Like, I imagine know. next it's, month when it's the Cardinal. I know. It's going to pack so that fun. house. Uh, we met a lot of listeners, a lot of new people. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for tweeting pictures and uh, quotes from the evening. It was a really great time. And thank you to everyone at the Archdiocese of Washington who invited us. It was really wonderful. And we have another, if you missed us in D.C. Yeah, you got a chance to check us out in New York uh, because next week we are having a live show featuring Mary Carr. Which is, I'm so excited about. I know. Watch me fangirl. (laughs) (laughs) For those who don't know, Mary Carr is a best-selling poet and uh, memoirist uh, and just like a really cool catholic lady mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we're excited to talk to her yeah so make sure you guys get your tickets because they are selling out fast and where, where can you find the tickets uh you can find it on america's facebook page facebook.com slash america mag and go to the events page and you'll find our live show and information on tickets and finally we want to give a shout out to our newest patreon member becky condes if you have not checked out our patreon page uh please do it's uh patreon dot com slash America Media and if you go there and become a donor for Jesuitical, you get a lot of cool benefits. All right. And now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So this week I've got a consolation. I was on my way back from DC uh, late last night slash early this morning because the Amtrak was a mess. Um and I was really cranky and just like out of it and tired. And Once we get to Penn Station, um, this woman who had been sitting across from me walks up to this guy and she's like, hey, I heard you talking about losing a relative. And I just want to let you know that I also lost someone. And, you know, I just want to let you know that I'm praying for you and that God is with you. Um, And one, it was just really shocking to see someone in New York City approach a stranger and then to be so vulnerable in that moment and just kind of go out of her own comfort zone to talk to this person who she was like, oh, this person is clearly suffering and going through it. Um, I just thought to myself, what if more people were like this? If more people just did things like this in New York City and just seeing that example was just super, super consoling. And it was just God was very clearly present in that. Um, If people did that at 3 p.m., let alone 3 a.m. I know. know. All right, Zach, what do you have? This week, I also have a consolation. Uh, So... We talked about on the show earlier that we were in D.C. this week. And one of the great things that I loved about that was meeting so many people who I knew digitally. Um, Either I knew that people were listening and so I didn't have a name to your face um, or I had a like a Twitter profile. Um, And to be able to like be with people uh, in the flesh, like in uh, the same physical space sort of reminded me of this incarnational aspect of the way God loves us, the the importance of uh, being present physically with people in relationships reminded me of the way that God thinks that's important too, right? So it reminded me of the sacraments that we um, believe that, you know, God came as a person in the flesh and that God comes in the sacraments in that are matter and flesh. And so that was the consolation there, just filled with gratitude for knowing that those relationships matter and are important. And now you know, I might not see these people for a long time, but having been with them once um, gives a whole new perspective on this digital relationship. Yeah, that's great. So that's my consolation. Cool. What do you got, Ashley? Um, well, I had a weekend full of consolations. Uh, my older brother got married on Saturday uh-huh. um, and it was really wonderful. Um, so I'm just going to pick one. <laughs> 
Um, was so- it the DJ? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I yes, wonder Zach, who the DJ was. Zach, Zach and Angela <laughs> were the DJs at my brother's wedding, and they did a really good job. So that was one of the consolations. Uh, I don't know exactly where God in that. <laughs> I'd ask you to do more prayer about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the what I want to talk about is, um, so uh, my brother's now wife, uh, Dina Bo, comes from a really wonderful family um, that kind of mirrors mine. They have the same number of kids and in like the same order, like brother, sister, sister, brother. Um, and this weekend was the first time that I met any of them. And we just like immediately, like we were immediately family. And her brothers now like call me little sister and like, like want to protect me and make me feel so loved. Um, and like, I'm very much like a family person. Like I, when I feel most comfortable and safe, and loved is when I'm with my family. Um, And this weekend, you know, I saw God kind of like exploding that space, like making Mm -hmm. it just like expanding it, you know, like doubling it by like introducing these people in my life that I now, that I now feel that same safety and love and Mm -hmm. comfort around. Um, So I saw God in that. That's beautiful. I like the idea of God like exploding (laughs) in that space. So, yeah. So, congratulations to Chris and Dina. All right. Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Barb Gilman. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering and design by Angelo Jesus Canta. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. And please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Vesta63. And finally, send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.